the 27th verse of that first chapter of Mark. They were all amazed, and they kept asking one another, What is this? A new teaching? With authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Please pray with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on all of us. Melt us, mold us, fill us, and use us instruments in building up your kingdom. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. If you're anything like me, you'll often sit down in front of your TV and fire up Netflix. You wander through one channel after another, after another, looking desperately for something new, something interesting to watch. You might turn to see the recommendations that Netflix has for you, only be disappointed after the first few minutes of the show, and then begin looking for something else. What you really want are those personal recommendations, those recommendations that come from friends. Hey, this is what you really have to see. It's a must-watch show. Now, it turns out that Netflix isn't the only place to find such drama. You can also find it here in church. (laughs) The show is called The Radical Words from Mark's Jesus, and it's the sermon series we're going through right now. This is something you should be telling your friends about. The excitement of church. Oh, yeah! This is not your standard Cecil B. DeMille version of the Bible with lots of melodrama and big expensive scenes. This is a a message that has transformed people's lives for the past 2,000 years. These are radical words that can rock your world. Now, in case you missed the first two episodes, let me give you a brief recap. The first radical word of Jesus was metanoia, or repentance. As I explained two weeks ago, this is not about confessing one sin or another in our lives. Metanoia refers to a life change, a shift in our orientation to God. If you want to make a difference in the world, if you want to mold your life after those original disciples whose Jesus movement forever changed the course of events, you have to first turn to God. On your own, you're not able to solve the problems of the world. In fact, on your own, your self-interest may get in the way of meaningful change. But metanoia, turning to God for guidance, offers the one real path forward. Last week, I talked about another radical word of Jesus Jesus that we find in Mark, and that is kerygma. The kerygma is the basic proclamation of Jesus. It's the essence of his message. Turn to God, engage in metanoia, for the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God is beginning. It's here. The world around us might be mired in pessimism. It might be stuck on a 24-hour news cycle designed to divide us or make us mad. But as Christians, we are called to look for signs for the dawning of the new age. And those signs are there. Look closely. See what, the, see what the spirit is bubbling up in society today. Notice the renewed interest in standing up for what is right. This defies partisan boundaries. People all over are feeling it. Believe that the kingdom of God is coming. Believe in that good news. That is the kerygma of Jesus. Today, we turn our attention to another word. We've already begun to commit ourselves to God, to look to God for answers. We feel a stirring inside us that, if it, that it can happen, that real change can happen. Now we're looking for the tools to bring it about. We need some how-tos to show us the way. And that's what today's message is all about. 
Perhaps it's not as esoteric or sexy as metanoia and kerygma, but this morning's word is equally important. The word for today is authority, or exousia in Greek. In Jesus' time, it was pretty clear who had authority. One word more than any other evoked power. That word was Rome. It was symbolized by a bundle of sticks wrapped together with an axe, that same image you see on the cover of your bulletin. Where that image went, you knew power went with it. It was a symbol of Roman might. The vast Roman Empire proved again and again who had authority in the Mediterranean. They were the ones who called the final shots around Palestine. When Jesus was a child, some Jews in Palestine revolted. They thought they could challenge Roman authority with their own might. Then the Romans sent their legions in and crushed the nascent rebellion without remorse. They took direct control over Jerusalem and the surrounding areas and appointed an imperial governor with legionnaires permanently stationed in order to keep the peace. To paraphrase Mao Zedong, Roman authority grew out of the end of a spear. It was the kind of authority that came with physical domination and threats of violence. We were all familiar with that type of authority. There's nothing particular to the first century about it. The police department, whose cars park in our church parking lot, have authority. Sure, they have authority because we respect the police and we respect the law, but when push comes to shove, their authority comes from their ability to arrest people and have the full weight of the law behind it. They can lock you away in prison. Our law is is upheld in the final analysis by force. There's also the type of authority that comes from money. We all know that type of authority. People with money have the power to buy things, to employ people, to finance elections, Because money has so many uses and because it has such a big impact on our society and our lives, we give people authority who have money without even them spending it on anything. There's even the mere chance of them spending it gives them power and authority. It was true in Jesus' time and it's true today. But there are other types of authority as well. In Jesus' day, the scribes had authority. The scribes represented the authority of the Jewish faith. Judaism has long been a religion of the book. The Bible is divine revelation, and those who interpret the Bible have tremendous influence. That interpretive authority was not given to just anyone. You needed the proper education in the proper way. You needed authorization from some governing religious authority. Then, and only then, could you be a legitimate interpreter. Today, we have all sorts of similar sources of authority, the types of authority that come from knowledge and professional qualifications. The most obvious example here in this place is me. The United Church of Christ, our denomination, in the the United Church of Christ, our denomination, religious leaders must be thoroughly educated. They must be examined by local committees on ministry, go through interviews and papers and psychological exams. Finally, once we have a call, we get ordained, that ritual that confers religious authority. We put on fancy robes and get a title to put before our names, all with an eye towards providing the authority that all will recognize. We do the same thing with doctors and lawyers and architects, among others. They all need specific education, rigorous education, that gives them important knowledge, the type of knowledge that most people don't have. They also need to be examined by a governing board or professional association that grants titles and certificates. These professional people have authority. Don't forget about the authority of social convention, of long-standing social habits and expectations, the way things ought to be that has tremendous power and is taught over many years by our parents and society at large. Social convention forces us to sublimate our desires when they go against what is expected. 
Recently, I've been watching the Netflix TV show The Crown. I, I'm, not just, I'm, I'm not just looking for the Gospel of Mark on there. <laughs> One thing that strikes me again and again in The Crown is the authority of the Queen. The show makes it pretty clear uh, that the Queen is a, a relatively unremarkable person. She attempts to navigate, navigate the, inc- the intricacies of being a monarch in the second half of the 20th century. She has a tremendous amount of authority, even though she has very little real political power. The drama of the show comes from her attempting to maintain the authority of the crown while social conventions are rapidly changing. Yet the strength of social convention is such that she is revered wherever she goes. The same thing holds true for social conventions in all sorts of ways in our own society. They subtly or not so subtly give authority to certain people or positions. I bet you can name several powerful social conventions that convey authority. The thing about these sources of authority, military force, money, professional attainment, and social conventions, is that they all work to reinforce the status quo. These sources of authority work to keep things stable, as they always have been. But when you think about it, there must be other sources of authority as well. Things aren't always stable. Things do change. We want them to change. We want to bring about the kingdom of God. And knowing these other sources of authority is the key to do just that. The sources of authority that support the status quo are often confronted by other sources of authority. We must be missing something. Something that maybe our text for today can help us with. When Jesus walks into the synagogue in Capernaum, he does so as a virtual unknown. Nowhere in the text do we get the sense that Jesus is recognized as a great teacher or healer, let alone as a messiah. As he crosses the threshold of the synagogue, Jesus sees about two dozen men gathered there. Up front, there's a rabbi with a scroll open on the lectern. He's reading in a low tone verses from the Torah. Heads nod in vague recognition of the Hebrew text. Some know Hebrew well. Others use their Aramaic background to make out what is being said. Without pausing, Jesus makes his way to the front of the room. The light from the open windows casts long shadows over those who are seated. As Jesus approaches the lectern, the rabbi looks at him quizzically. He's about to say something to Jesus, but upon looking in Jesus' eyes, he stops. There's something about this man, this figure. Jesus moves towards the scrolls on the back wall and chooses the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. With all eyes upon him, he opens to chapter 61 and begins to read. Everyone there is amazed. This man is upending social convention. He is challenging the nature of religious authority. And yet everyone is paying attention. Or to guess, I would say they're paying attention because Jesus is someone who had charisma. Charisma, that sense of personal magnetism, draws people towards it. It can be a great destabilizing force. Certain people, certain individuals have the capacity to capture the attention of a crowd. People lean in and want to hear what charismatic people have to say. It's a wild card in, in the authority equation. Charisma can give, can give authority to people like Jesus who have no real reason to have authority. You see the power of charismatic people throughout history. Many of the most successful religious leaders have it. Whether you like Joel Osteen or not, whether you agree with his theology or the way he runs his church, Joel Osteen has the personal mag- magnetism to hold crowds under his sway. Someone else could get up on the same stage with the same message and have not nearly the same authority because he doesn't have Joel Osteen's charisma. The most famous political figures also gain authority through charisma. Think of Barack Obama in 2008. 
You're someone with relatively little political experience who captured the minds and hearts of millions of Americans, in large part through his personal charisma. Ronald Reagan was similarly charismatic. Every time Reagan got on TV, he drew you in. He gave off, he gave off the aura of what a president should be. Telegenic was a word that kept coming up in descriptions of Ronald Reagan. His charisma gave him a new source of authority. The same thing could be said for Franklin Roosevelt or even Donald Trump. In the 2016 campaign, Trump drew huge crowds. His speeches were not polished rhetoric like those of Barack Obama, but he had a tremendous capacity to connect with the crowd and have them eating out of his hand. Seeing that charisma is impressive. The thing about authority that's drawn from charisma is that it builds on itself. Reputation reinforces the power of charisma, as do the size of crowds and ever-increasing press attention. Movie actors are a great example of this. Actors in movies are no more charismatic than those on Broadway. Many might argue less so, given the nature of the medium. But when actors are broadcast over thousands of movie screens and millions of TVs and streaming services, those eyes, those expressions, that personality take on all the more authority. Hollywood actors use this authority to promote various political and social causes that have nothing to do with their expertise, but based solely on their built-up charisma. As the evangelist Billy Graham or Billy Sunday drew bigger and bigger crowds to their crusades and revivals, as they drew more press coverage and as more stories of their personality spread, they gained more and more authority. A charismatic person has a natural sense of authority. A famous charismatic person has that same authority amplified. But charisma as a source of authority can be dangerous. Just because someone has charisma doesn't mean that person will do good. Think of the bully in elementary school. He was likely, a charisma he was likely charismatic. His personality drew people towards him. But he, used to, but he used it to belittle others and to pick on the weak. Watching old videos of Adolf Hitler shows the extent of his charisma. Everyone in the crowd was mesmerized by him. They hung on his every word. Hitler knew how to leverage his popularity. He knew how to build up a cult of personality and to construct a performance to maximize his own charisma so that he seemed almost godlike to those around him. Hitler's authority, Hitler's charisma, had devastating consequences for the world. But when we turn our attention back to the story of Jesus, we realize that there's something else going on here. Not just Jesus' charisma that gives him exousia, authority. Yes, that was undoubtedly part of it, but there's something else, something even more profound going on here. Jesus isn't able to cast out demons because of his charisma. I know who you are, the Holy One of God, the demons within the possessed man cry out. The connection. Jesus' authority is rooted in his knowledge and experience of the spiritual realm. This question cuts right to the heart of religious truth. Sometimes people get up and begin to speak, and something they say touches us. We're moved, to, we're moved to nod our heads, yes. There is a resonance, a spiritual resonance, that provides authority. That type, of, that type of authority that I'm talking about is moral authority, the power of moral truth. But moral authority is not as cut and dried as you might assume. I could get up here and read the Ten Commandments, but that wouldn't give me moral authority. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath, the Lord your God. You should not do any work, 
you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or your, or your alien residents in your towns. I could say it with a loud, imposing voice. That verse from, from Exodus 20 is one that's familiar to many of us. It can sound proper and, and intimidating. But how much moral authority does it actually have? How much moral authority is carried with keeping the Sabbath just because it's written in the Bible? Most people, even supposedly Christian people, don't keep the Sabbath. Why? Because it's lost its sense of moral truth. Moral authority, the type of authority that Jesus had, is based on truth. How do we experience something that's true? How do we discern truth? We can see something with our eyes, or touch it with our hands, or smell it with our noses, or hear it with our ears. We know that things are true through our sensory experiences. That's difficult to dispute. I know this pulpit is here because I can touch it and see it. But there are ways of knowing truth that go beyond our senses. This is something that secular people often fail to grasp when they think of religion. The so-called new atheists and others critique religious people for believing things we cannot see, but they assume that the only way to know things is through our senses. Yet there are things we know to be true that don't rely on our senses. Certain things we know to be true because they align with our experience of the world. This is the great and important secret of moral authority. There are people out there who claim that being gay is a sin, that sex between two people of the same gender is against God's law. They base this on their particular reading of the Bible, or more likely what they've been taught through their life. They claim this is an immutable truth. And yet the lived experience of gay people refutes this at every turn. I have felt deep love and connection with other men, and that is true and valid. I have felt wholeness, love, acceptance with other men. From my own experience, I refuse to believe that being gay is a sin. It's simply not true. It does not align with my experiences. Those who know and love gay people feel the same way. Condemning gays in our society increasingly lacks moral authority because it fails to resonate with our experiences of what we know to be true. The same thing can be said for people of color or women. For thousands of years, people have been told they are less than because of their gender or the color of their skin or their ethnicity. And yet those people, in their lived experience with their whole bodies and souls, cry out, no. Women are not inferior. People of color and their experiences are not inferior. Different ethnicities and cultures might be different, but they bring their own truth and beauty with them. There are ways of knowing that are rooted in human experience. Moral authority comes from naming those experiences. Leaders in the African-American tradition can speak to to the experiences of living as an African-American. And that gives authority and power. That was true of W.E.B. Du Bois. That was true of Martin Luther King Jr. It was true of Malcolm X. To speak to someone's experience authentically is a source of tremendous authority. This is the basis and grounds for moral authority. Someone can stand up and say that people with intellectual disabilities are less than. But when you have known and loved someone who who has intellectual disabilities, you know that not to be true. It conflicts with your deep-seated moral compass that God places within each of us. This is the source of so much of Jesus' authority. When Jesus speaks, when he interprets scripture, he does it in a way that resonates with the experiences of people there. It also resonates with us, even though we are separated from him by 2,000 years. That authority does not derive from money or force or social conventions or some professional qualification. It doesn't rely on Jesus' charisma, which we can't experience for ourselves. 
Jesus' authority, his radical world-changing authority, his moral authority, and it has the possibility to upset the world. You just need to listen to it. This is the radical secret that Mark's Jesus is trying to tell us. Exousia, authority, grows out of our ability to see the experiences of others and to discern the moral truth of God that we find there. Churches in the United States have a great task before us. It's up to us to provide the radical moral voice society so desperately needs. People are hungry for it. When certain churches bash gay marriage, they lose their moral authority because it doesn't line up with the experiences of so many people, especially young people. Churches need to recapture their moral authority, and that begins by taking human experiences seriously. This is a task for each of us. Rather than relying on received concepts of authority, can we aim to speak up to the lived experiences of people, to move ourselves and those around us to a new place? Can we challenge the concepts of, of authority that have so long dominated society since the time of Jesus? If we want to step into the radical vision of Jesus we need, that, that we find in the Gospel of Mark, we need to embrace a life change, metanoia. We need to reorient our lives to God. At the same time, we need to see and believe that the kingdom of God is coming. We have to be optimistic and look for chances to proclaim the good news. But we also need to claim our own exousia, our own authority. We need to see that authority comes from sources outside the expected, and that the most powerful source of moral authority comes from the lived experience of our fellow human beings. Intuitively, I know that you understand this. Those of you who marched in the Women's March yesterday understand this. The Women's March is about giving voices to women and women's experiences that the status quo in our society has too long rejected. There's a danger in making these marches too partisan. When, they become, when, we, when we become too partisan in our efforts, we run, the list, we run the risk of losing our moral authority. Every political party should be concerned about the experiences of women. We need to be moral voices for both political parties, and that depends on us keeping an eye on the sources, the true sources, of our moral authority, the resonance of God within the human experience. We can do that. If we can look to Jesus as the example, if we can claim the authority that is ours, we can be key players in the age that is dawning. Think of a message that is more radical or needed to that.